If Jesus is going to make an announcement, then we really ought to listen. And why does Jesus announce these things to us? I think it's because they're not totally obvious to us. Without Jesus, we wouldn't really know that the way to power is not by the ways we've always known, but it's through meekness. Without Jesus, we wouldn't know that God's kingdom is tailor-made for people who are bad at being spiritual. We wouldn't know that with a clean heart, we can look upon God himself. These things aren't totally obvious to us naturally because sin has distorted our vision. Uh, It's like we, we can't see straight. And we didn't even know that we couldn't see straight until Jesus came and showed us what reality is actually like. It's like if you were born sick and everyone around you is sick and all you've ever known is how sick people operate and live in the world, and then you probably would think that it's just normal being sick. And then a totally healthy person shows up and they show you that you can actually breathe through your nose and this is what life can really be like. It's, It's different from the ways that you've always known. And that's sort of what's happening with the Beatitudes. Our our skewed reality is being challenged because Jesus is announcing to us what reality is like without the distortion. He's announcing to us how his gospel works in the world. And so far, Jesus has announced that his kingdom belongs to regular people. He's announced that God comforts mourners that the meek, not the dominant, are those with true power, that those who desire to see things and people made right have the same telos, the same end goal as God. He's announced that being merciful creates more mercy, that a heart without smudges has the ability to see God without glitching out in his presence. And he's announced that peacemaking is bringing the shalom of the presence of Jesus into other people's chaos. All of these announcements are meant to correct our distorted view of reality and bring the kingdom of heaven into focus. Which brings us to the final beatitude today. Now, I say the final beatitude, and some scholars and some people have an issue with me saying that because verses 11 and 12 look like another beatitude, at least. But I'm on the eight beatitude side rather than the nine beatitude side, and I, I think I have some, some ground to stand on. Uh, Jesus starts the first one with, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then this last one, he ends it, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think that's a literary device, a bookends, so to speak. So we're stopping with these Beatitudes rather than the next couple sentences. So we'll be in Matthew 5, 1 through 10. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. There's Bibles in front of you or under you. If you don't have a Bible, you can have that one. If you want to study the Bible together, email me and we'll set up a time. Matthew 5, 1 through 10. Uh, We are focusing on verse 10 today. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version this morning. When the crowds saw Jesus, when Jesus saw the crowds, rather, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Uh, In more contemporary language, I think a good rewording of this beatitude would sound like, happy are those who are mocked and harmed for all the right reasons, for God's kingdom belongs to such a person. Uh, Just like blessed are those who mourn, this final beatitude is a paradoxical one. Uh, And just like the pure in heart beatitude, I think it's going to be much harder for all of us in this room to identify with this one. Um, Because just like mourning, persecution is never really experienced as a happy thing. Um, No one is standing in line at the persecution store ready to get the latest type of suffering in exchange for their beliefs, right? It is upside down thinking. And it feels upside down because sin has skewed our perception of reality. Ever since Jesus came to earth, his ministry and his gospel has been viewed as upside down, as opposite from from reality. And it's not just here in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, later in Matthew, uh, Jesus says that the greatest among you will be your servant. He says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, he says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things. And Paul also talks about God's power being perfected in weakness. And then in the book of Acts, there's the religious leaders in in Thessalonica, it's a a city in Greece. They capture a local church leader. His name is Jason. And they bring him to the rulers of the city. And they say, these who have turned the world upside down are here too. Jason has harbored them, and they are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. The life of Jesus and his followers is upside down. It is contrary. It is different. And this is really important to understand when we talk about this final beatitude. So, what is persecution? Like all the other Beatitudes, we really ought to know what we're talking about to understand what Jesus is announcing. So I'll offer a definition that I don't think will encapsulate all persecution. But I do think it does a good job for the context of what Jesus is talking about. So this is sort of a mashup of definitions I've heard. So persecution is harm, suffering, ridicule, or an externally imposed disadvantage disadvantage from a dominant culture upon a non-dominant culture. That may not cover all the bases, 
but it covers a whole lot of what we see in the New Testament. Um, And what causes persecution? Well, for the most part, dominant cultures and non-dominant cultures actually live in peace, in harmony, even in ancient times, uh, believe it or not. Uh, For the most part, different ideas and beliefs are generally tolerated, Uh, even especially in a pluralistic society. uh, There's even different ideas and beliefs in this room, and we hopefully more than tolerate each other. We love one another, right? But what causes persecution is holding beliefs and practicing customs that the dominant culture or the status quo frowns upon and frowns upon enough to attempt to correct those beliefs or customs. But what is persecution for the sake of righteousness? Put it all together. It is harm, suffering, ridicule, or an externally imposed disadvantage from a dominant culture onto a non-dominant culture for all the right reasons. We need to notice here that persecution arising from unrighteous behavior is not what is blessed. What is blessed is persecution arising from righteousness or justice or correctness or, or being right. Persecution in exchange for living in the purposes and causes of Jesus Christ. This is how the New Testament sort of defines what is going on here. It's inherently tied to Jesus and what his life looks like. What does it look like though? Well, sometimes it can look like martyrdom. Have you ever heard of that word martyrdom? Uh, do you know what a martyr is? Probably. It's, uh, it's actually a Greek word. It's not an English word. When you say martyr, you're not saying an English word. It's a, it's a Greek word. And all, what it simply means is witness. It means testimony. That's what the word martyr means. Uh, but we usually use that word for people who have been killed for having faith in Jesus. And the New Testament usually holds these people in very high regard. Jesus himself is a martyr. The 12 disciples are martyrs. And uh, there are millions of others between them and us who fit into that category. Uh, That's what persecution can look like. But persecution is not limited to murder. It can look as intense and and as personal as murder, but it can also look as discreet and as systematic as simply withholding goods and services. I want to pause here because certain images and anecdotes in our culture may have popped up in your brain about how Christians in maybe our context have been persecuted based on withholding goods and services. I want to nip that in the bud, and I want to say that we are not persecuted here. There are places in the world where Christians are persecuted. That is not here. Uh, The dominant culture cannot logically persecute itself. You and I have no idea what it is like to have the Bible banned from you ever reading it. We can all go to Walmart or Amazon right now and have a Bible today. Um. We all freely came to worship this morning, and we all probably passed at least one church on the way. 
no one has told me what I can and cannot say, and no one has screened our worship songs to make sure they will not entice uh, uh, some sort of uprising. No one has told us that we can't go out and serve the community or even bring people into our own faith. All of these things happen because Christians just are not persecuted here. We may get made fun of by certain groups. Maybe some of that is well-deserved. We may be challenged intellectually, publicly, but that's not persecution. There are groups in our culture that do experience persecution in some form or another, but it's not Christians. The dominant culture cannot persecute itself. The New Testament never imagined a world where Christians don't suffer because they are somehow now the ones in charge. It's foreign, actually, to the Bible. It's foreign to our faith. That's why the second half of this beatitude is all about being given a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, because we aren't supposed to have a kingdom here. We aren't supposed to have a king here. Persecution is what drives you deeper into the kingdom of God because the way you live your life in the way of Jesus is so upside down from the world that the world just cannot accept it. And so you must be dealt with. Uh, Persecution is what drives you deeper into the kingdom of God. This is what the Bible envisions, uh, what life is like for disciples, an upside down life that cannot help but exist as antithetical to the kingdoms of the world. And if we live this way, then we will know what it is like to be antithetical. I think for the weird Christians in the world, uh, those of us who dictate culture, who are not persecuted by it, but have a say in it, there's a very important lesson to hear in this beatitude. It is the dominant culture who persecutes. And if it is blessed to be persecuted, then it is evil to persecute. The dominant culture doesn't have to worry about persecution. It has to worry about persecuting others. In the time of the Bible, being a Christian meant being completely different from everybody else. It meant otherness. It meant a hard and difficult life that usually meant being ostracized from the culture and the world around you. I don't know everybody's life story, so I'm going to leave open the possibility for Uh, some experienced persecution like the New Testament is talking about, but the vast majority of us have never been persecuted the way the New Testament envisions. We can't really identify with this one, but we can be shaped by it. I think the way that you and I can be shaped by this beatitude is by actively not persecuting others and proactively being righteous by opposing evil and persecution from our dominant culture. So I am completely open to being totally wrong about my thoughts on this beatitude. I am not the person who creates truth, okay? Uh, But this one is like the parable of the rich man and Lazarus to me. Uh, We all want to see ourselves in Lazarus, the guy who suffered and who ended up spending his time in the presence of God after his death. But in reality, 
Just because of the context that we're born into, our lives often look a lot more like the rich man who gets rewarded in this life rather than in the other. It's okay to be in that position, but it's what we do with the position that matters in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the persecuted, those who are harmed, who suffer for all the right reasons, because they live a life like Jesus, antithetical to the kingdoms and the cultures of the world. There is no other place for them but the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to move to start talking about the Beatitudes in general, since we're closing on the series. Ultimately, here's what I think the Beatitudes are talking about. They show us how the gospel works in the world, the the way things actually are. They show us what Jesus is like, giving us a clear image of what it means to follow him. And throughout this whole series, we've, what we've really been studying is the alternative life of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been studying the way of Christ. The Beatitudes are what his kingdom looks like. And in many ways, it's the opposite of our kingdoms. In this series, God has been teaching us that the life he has for us to participate in is an actual alternative. Not not an alternative of life within the world, but an actual alternative to the world altogether. God has been teaching us this from the very beginning of his self-revelation. In the book of, of Isaiah, he told the prophet Isaiah, he said, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Uh, For my ways are not your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. It's no wonder that the otherness of God and the strangeness of the ways of Jesus causes friction in the world around us because our ways just simply aren't his. His are different. His are other Those who look like Jesus do not belong here because their ways look a lot more like they came from another place. And I believe this is why Jesus begins his foundational teachings of the Christian faith with the same phrase as he ends it with. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't repeat any of the other ones. Right from the beginning, Jesus is telling us something incredible. He's saying, hey, the things I'm laying out right now, they don't belong to this place. In fact, they don't belong to this place. And if you don't belong to this place, if you're going to live this kind of life, then you're not going to belong here either. And when you're done belonging to this place, Rejection will be your reward, and misunderstanding will be your normal. You may even feel like, to quote the old hymn, you can't feel at home in this world anymore. That landed better in first service, but uh, if we follow the ways of Jesus, 
There will be a sense of loneliness that we carry, a sense of otherness. You might feel like a bit of a weirdo and all the other people that you do this kind of life with, they might be a bunch of weirdos too. A bunch of sojourners, a bunch of nomads going from place to place, living a completely alternative life, a blessed life. That may not sound like a lot of fun, but here's what I think Jesus is saying to us in the Beatitudes. Despite the feeling of loneliness and otherness, that this alternative life that Jesus brings you, there is one place for you. There is one place where you do belong. There is a place for you who are faithful in Christ. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. That is your place. You are in Christ. That is where you belong. With all the normal people and all the mourners and the meek and the seekers of what is right, the merciful and the pure and the peacemakers, and yes, the persecuted. Whether you identify with them or you need to be shaped by them, if this is your life, you belong in the kingdom of heaven. And that is a blessed life to have. We're going to pray, and then we're going to have communion together as a family. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are a God who wants to be known, who wants to teach us what you're like. You love us and you want to shape us into your own image. We're grateful for that. Father, I pray that you would give us the discernment to not be persecutors. (laughs) But also, Lord, I pray that you would help us to uh, recognize persecution when we see it and to be an offering of help when we do. Father, shape us into people who love you and want to make your name and your ways known in the world, not just among us, but around our town and around our state and country and city and the world. We love you, God. We ask for the grace to love you more. We thank you that you've provided a new life for us. In Jesus' name, amen.